0: The Rathbone's Inspired Minds podcast series. Hello and welcome to the Rathbone's Inspired Minds podcast series. I'm Daniel Norcross. In each episode, acclaimed writers, scientists and entrepreneurs reveal what inspires them. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by a writer, presenter, satirist and stand-up comedian who's been performing on stage for nearly 25 years. Host of the long-running Bugle podcast, he's worked alongside some of the biggest names in comedy from John Oliver to Chris Addison, Vish Kumar, Rory Bremner, Josie Long, Rebecca Front and Al Murray. He somehow juggles his stage show Satirist for Hire with being, for the last seven years, Test Match Special's resident scorer, and his sporting passions don't end with cricket. An obsessive fan of Streatham Red Hawks ice hockey team, he's also appeared on the BBC's coverage of the World Snooker Championship, but... You will probably know him best as the presenter of Radio 4's The News Quiz. Please welcome Andy Zaltzman. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Andy. Well, it's the Inspired Minds podcast. Yes. You're an inspirational mind for many. (laughs) Really? Yes. Well, I mean, every time you trot out another deeply barbed comment about the latest failings of our politicians. I dare say it inspires <laughs> a generation to take to the streets. But inspiration, where do you gather yours from, or indeed do you even need it?
1: Well, it's quite hard to define inspiration, I think, in terms of creativity. I mean, fundamentally, the greatest inspiration anyone can have in the creative arts is a deadline. And I'm fortunate in my my comedy life when i'm doing the news quiz or the bugle that i have weekly deadlines so when i'm doing both at the same time that's two deadlines a week that i have to write a show for and i can't miss it if i've missed the deadline i don't have anything to say on the shows so that's a huge inspiration i mean it's a mixture of uh, fear of missing that deadline and contractual obligation and that's quite a potent cocktail
0: You've designed your life, though, around these deadlines, haven't you? I mean, you didn't just sort of fall into being a satirist. You've actively sought it out. You've been doing the Bugle podcast, which is a satirical podcast, for how many years now? I mean, 15, 16 years?
1: Uh, Yeah, just over 16. We started it in late 2007. That was with John Oliver, who i had been my um, sort of comedy partner for a few years before he went to the States to work on The Daily Show and um, become the Voice of America. We'd done a lot of, sort of topical stuff, some on radio uh, as well as live shows that are sort of addressed you know, generally broad political issues rather than specifically Westminster politics. But that was always the, the kind of comedy that I enjoyed most to watch. The sort of broad satirical comedy on, say, the day-to-day or uh, on the hour on the radio that it sprang from and then and Brass Eye uh, that um, Chris Morris did in the, in the 90s or in, in live stand-up, people like Jeremy Hardy and Mark Steele. And Robert Newman, who'd sort of addressed you know the biggest issues of of the day through the medium of stand up and you know when I was starting out as a stand up you know, that was quite inspirational to see what you could do with the art form in terms of you know trying to address the sort of most important things in life and obviously stand up can work in many different ways, whether it's observations about the minutiae of life or addressing great political and and social issues. My observational skills were almost nil so observational comedy wasn't really open for me i couldn't do shows about uh, my own personal life because it's been unremittingly tedious and uh, unremarkable <laughs> and uh, my parents loved me as a child and really gave me nothing to work with um, and i've been in a you know stable relationship stroke marriage for two and a half decades so so i had to sort of find my content in other things and you know the watching comedy that sort of aimed to you know, make people laugh about Issues that weren't necessarily in themselves funny it was a a challenge that I always enjoyed. I'm, and I never sort of sort of saw satirical comedy necessarily as having certainly not in stand up power to change the world, change people's minds. It's largely more cathartic. than That I think when it gets to a stage where it has a big audience in the way that say John Oliver's show in America now does, it can you know have an influence on how politics is conducted. But generally, it's uh, it's more. A sort of cathartic process for comedian and audience but, but i don't think that's uh, you know without value but it was more that it was just the comedy that interested me
0: the most and um you know the comedians that i enjoyed watching most as well have you been in any way rather influenced perhaps by the subject that you studied you, you went to oxford to study classics and comedy in the in the classics world heavily leans on satire doesn't it we think about aristophanes for example that's how we sort of Get introduced to the comedies, if you like, and they are brutal satires of their time, focusing a lot about the turmoil within the Peloponnesian War when Athens and Sparta were going head to head, and yet somehow taking this incredible conflagration, which for the writers and the people of Athens at the time must have felt absolutely terrifying and abysmal like a, a, a troop of Daleks, although they wouldn't have known them yet, marching across the plains of Greece to come to threaten Athens and yet Aristophanes turns these things into really not, not whimsical, but really sort of powerfully absurdist. And, you know, even the phrase reductio ad absurdum, it's a Latin phrase. Were your comedy touch points influenced by what you'd studied, or, or was it perhaps the other way around?
1: That's a good question. I studied Aristophanes at, at school for A-level and then at, at university, and I was not a model student in any way. I'm, Love my time at university, but I didn't study quite as hard as, with hindsight, would have been ideal. But Aristophanes is one thing that I found absolutely fascinating, and what I think made it most—it was the most sort of vivid of the literature that I, I studied at university of the from the ancient world, in that it was you know, often sort of set in the present rather than in a sort of mythical past. Uh, so it was addressing directly life as it was and events as as they were happening in a way that the tragedies and the epic poetry didn't. They might be making sort of oblique metaphorical points about how politics was conducted, but Aristophanes could directly talk about events and political figures as well as society in general. Alongside that, what made it absolutely fascinating for me, and I think it has been genuinely something that influenced my approach to comedy and how I've tried to do it, is that it worked on numerous levels. It was performed in front of the entire male population of, of Athens. So it had to appeal to all classes of society. So you had this extraordinary mix of political satire, fairly intricate literary parody, slapstick, puns, sex jokes. It's like total comedy. I mean, if the if the Dutch football team had been a, a comedy show in the 1970s, that would have pretty much ended up doing what Aristophanes did in 400 BC or, or thereabouts. So. It was completely fascinating, and in terms of you know, most inspirational moments I've had as a comedian, I mentioned Robert Newman earlier. And there was a show I went to, and the first year I did a full Edinburgh Festival, I was having quite a tough time doing a package show late at night, um, which I was sometimes comparing, sometimes doing a, a spot in, and I was only been doing stand up a year and a half or so, and I wasn't quite ready for that. But I went to see Robert Newman do a show, and he did an hour and a half of uh, stuff about the global economy and, and politics, and that that you know sort of changed the way that I, I looked at my own comedy and made me think that I needed to totally almost restart what I was doing. The other show that had a really quite profound impact on me was in, in Athens. I was on holiday with my wife just before our first child was born, and I'd been doing comedy a few years by that point. And we went to see an Aristophanes play in modern Greek in the Roman theatre on the side of the Acropolis, which is just a few hundred yards away from the original Greek theatre where... Um, Aristophanes's plays would have been first performed and it was a play that both my wife and I we met at university and we both studied it and we I happened to have a translation of it uh, with me because I was um, I had to do a little thing on Aristophanes for a Radio 4 show after I got home and I thought I'd brush up on it because I hadn't read it since I was a student and it just so happened we saw a post of this live production of Aristophanes' frogs and we went along with our translation <laughs> our penguin translation and it was really incredible to see a play that was written you know almost two and a half thousand years ago making people laugh in almost exactly the same place that it had first been performed and you know it still had that that mixture of different strands of comedy that could make people laugh in lots of different ways over the course of a of a show so that that's i did find genuinely genuinely inspiring which seems appropriate for this uh, for this show
0: i'm interested by that because As a classicist, albeit not one that that was quite as assiduous at study as I might have been, but we're often looked at by other people as if, oh, you know, they're just interested in fragments and, and shards and old stuff, and it's completely irrelevant. But it seems to me that our battle... With life is trying to convince people that really nothing much has changed (laughs) and that what we were studying, that was two and a half thousand years old, is pretty much the same things as people are studying now. And everybody seems to think that what's happening now is new. And I wonder if that is partly what has fed your love of satire because it's not like there's anything really different happening in 2023. It's the same bloviating buffoons, it's the same (laughs) demagogues, it's the same mistakes being made. And you're really in touch with that because you've been studying a culture that's two and a half thousand years old.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of parallels, and also just comedically, uh, in terms of the structure of jokes or the nature of comedy. You don't see many things now that weren't done in some form or other within Aristophanes' collection of, of works that, that remain. Uh, wh- I think wh- why there's a strong parallel between sort of, classical Athens and the modern world in terms of the art and culture, is that probably between that time when I say these plays were performed in front of, other than the fact that it was only men, but in terms of the layers of society, it was performed to everyone until television was invented. There was probably not another time where the sort of cultural figures of the day had such direct access to all levels of society. So. Yeah, so I think that's what made Aristophanes' comedy and satire so potent was that it, it was almost like it was being broadcast on prime time television. Obviously, it was sort of performed once and then sort of disappeared, um, I think. But yeah, so I think there's, there's quite a lot of parallels with that. And I think that's that's why people who do get into classics and end up studying that particular period do find it so fascinating and pertinent to the world we live in now. But
0: what about your home life that makes it possible to question everything. Cuz really what a satirist is doing is not letting anybody get away with anything. A leader opens his or her mouth and says something and you go, "Wait a minute, you're a hypocrite. You said something completely different the other day. Were you brought up in an environment at home which routinely lampooned the world around you?" No.
1: No, I wasn't. My my father was quite a clown with a deep love of puns that may have influenced me in some ways, but no, I mean, I don't remember great in-depth discussions about politics or, you know, how the, the world conducted itself. So I think that probably sort of came later in my mind, probably when I went to, to university and moved away from the rather cosy Tunbridge Wells upbringing that I'd had up until that
0: point. But you weren't, and in your satire you aren't, particularly political. I and mean, that sounds a strange thing to say because you're a political satirist and you're a satirist of the, the world as you see it. But no one would know necessarily what side of the fence you sit. Mark Steele, whom we both know very well, is very clearly and outspokenly of the left. And he does make it his business to take down figures of the right specifically. You have a a much more equal opportunities lampooning technique. Anything is up for grabs. There's no sort of real hint that you've been politically influenced. And I suppose what you've described at home there is not necessarily a politically engaged family insofar as you're not tribal i mean that my family was tribal so the arguments raged between the different tribes whereas you're not describing that
1: no no i don't think there was um yeah i don't think there was any of that tribalism, and there weren't sort of you know we didn't have massive disagreements within our family and in terms of you know trying to satirize all sides of the political spectrum um i guess there's a number of factors that come into that um one is and again, you know Aristophanes would attack anything that that he thought merited the attention of his office his And I think you know generally with topical political comedy, it needs to look at all all sides also when I started stand up I started stand up in the late nineties so for the first sort of ten eleven years of my stand up career there was a there was a labor government so whereas I guess you know mark and and his generation and, and that strand of political alternative comedy had, had emerged. From Thatcherism essentially as an, as an opposition to that, so I guess you know that that might have been a factor as well also you know I'm, I think i 've constantly been aware of you know where I come from. I come from a comfortable background, privately educated, grew up in kent i can 't really lecture people about you know how to live their lives. So what I try to do is, as you say, sort of find points where you know there 's political hypocrisy or or you know address an issue without sort of imposing my personal Views on it now I had in in various reviews earlier in my career that this slightly undercut any satirical points I was trying to make i don 't know if that 's right or not, but it just felt that that was the voice that would be most effective for what I wanted to do and i you know, i 'm not in a position to tell people how to live, but I think you know if you address a political issue with a a mixture of comedic creativity and i guess a degree of objective analysis, then it can still be quite a potent combination i think
0: now as a satirist and having worked in it for 24 years or so as you say having lived through a 13-year labour government and now we have a very different set of circumstances there's been brexit there's been donald trump there's been four prime ministers in a year and a bit who knows when the next one might be you hear people saying oh this is a nightmare for the satirist because you can't satire what is already satire the world is living out a satire. I'm interested in your view on that.
1: Well, I think there's... Yeah, that's an interesting question. There's, I mean, I think there's, again, different elements to that. There, there's an element to which things are so absurd that, as you say, you couldn't have made it up. But that doesn't mean that you can't address it. And, you know, there's been a real satire boom in America really since, I mean, I guess the, you know, the Daily Show kicked it off, really. And that was, you know, during... That sort of came to prominence... I don't know exactly when it started, but during the George W. Bush era, when politics had become much more polarized and divisive, also during the age of the internet, and you know, particularly since the uh, development of podcasting, YouTube, it's enabled pretty much everyone in the world to be a comedian in some way. So that is a challenge in terms of finding an original angle on stories where there is sort of instant comedy emerging from around the world. So in a way that in the early part of my career, that wasn't really happening. You'd have you know radio shows, TV shows, but other than that, not a huge amount. Whereas now there is a real challenge to find original angles on stories because everywhere there are people satirizing stuff in some way. So, I mean, with Donald Trump, what I found myself doing in live shows and um, we did it on uh, some cricket stuff we did together to get an original way of dealing with Donald Trump comedically what I did was I printed out his brain on a 3d printer came out as a as a cauliflower on a tripod stuck electrodes in it and I tried to change the nature of his brain and ended up having Donald Trump's cauliflower brain talking about cricket and that was the extent I had to go to make sure that my Trump material wasn't being done by anyone else. <laughs> so that's one of the challenges, the fact that there is almost, you know, instant comedy about every news story. So to try and find you know, the pertinent angle and an original way of doing it is um something of a challenge. But that said, when there are huge stories that are you know so divisive, whether it's just the nature of Trumpist politics or Brexit or um pretty much all the the major political stories that gives you things to work with as a comedian so it in some ways it's made it easier because there is a constant flow of important things to try to address satirically and then sometimes it's in some ways it's a little harder because there is this unending deluge of satire that you have to try to stay distinctive
0: within do you also feel though that as a satirist you've got a certain responsibility because You know, I'm thinking about, say, the political consciousness of the nation. And over the last 10 or 15 years, the rise in client journalism has been very noticeable, hasn't it? We do get certain newspapers who unthinkingly parrot the views of one particular party or the other, the the government as it stands. Somebody's got to hold their feet to the fire. And there's a lot of spotlight on what the BBC does and its funding and how it comes from the state generally. So they have a a slightly more awkward position that they're in. They want to be careful about upsetting the government of the day because their funding depends on it. So, someone somewhere has got to hold our leaders to account, be they from one political party or another. Do you feel any sense of responsibility to do that?
1: Well, to an extent. But that said, you know, I have to be aware of the limitations of what satire can do. And the audience that it's reaching. So say when I do my podcast, The Bugle, that's got an audience, a couple of hundred thousand people dotted around the world, who are generally, to listen to a podcast, you actively find it, you choose to listen to it. So it's kind of hard to reach a broad political spectrum from within that. So I guess that sort of cathartic brand of satire, when on, on the radio, you don't know who's listening to it, or how they're listening to it. You get some people, it's just on in the background, it might not be uh, you know it's just part of the sound of their friday evening when when the the friday 630 slot is on but so you have to be aware of that slightly different relationship with an audience also there's an element to which i mean do people want to be lectured by comedy can satire be effective without having that sort of lecturing element and the the news quiz that i host there's it's a formatted sort of loosely a, a quiz show which gives it a lightness and a balance but it might make it sort of it's harder to go into proper satirical depth on something but i still think there's elements where which you know at the end of each week it has a big audience and we can try to highlight issues topics people that that's, you know i think are valid satirical targets so in terms of a responsibility i don't know it's quite hard to quantify or define that but uh yeah i'm obviously aware that as the host of a show like that it has a big audience it's dealing with the news and therefore it ought to aim High
0: satirically. Does that answer your question? Well, it sort of does. It, it sort of does. I mean, your work on the news quiz is obviously going out to a very different audience from your uh, work on the bugle because you curate your own podcast. And that means, in a sense, you curate your own listenership. And the result of that is that you've got your sort of your own echo chamber in a way. And I don't mean that pejoratively, but. It's what happens when we're on Test Match Special together. We're talking to people who like the sound of cricket. (laughs) We don't have to keep on telling everybody how wonderful cricket is because they're already tuning in to listen to it. So in a sense, the tone of the bugle can be something that you've curated for your curated audience. But with the news quiz, you've had to go in there and a little bit like Aristophanes, you're now talking to every stratum of the Radio 4 Listening Society, whether they be... Conservative voters, liberal, Labour—it matters not—and so that must make you have to think slightly differently about how you approach your role, doesn't it? Uh, definitely, obviously, with the bugle,
1: I can sort of do whatever stories I want, and I can you know choose the guests that I have on it. And as you say, it's you know it's an audience that tunes in because it you know likes the brand of comedy and generally will broadly agree with the political standpoint on it. As you say, the news quiz goes out to a broader and different type of audience. What's different about it is has have to be really precise. When, you know, say if I'm criticizing a government policy, I have to make sure that it's not just blathering on about how awful the government is or the policy is. I have to make sure that I've done my background research. And people might not agree with it, but I think as long as you've kind of researched it and make a point that has been carefully considered and try to make it funny, then then you can say quite strong and critical things about government, about an opposition. And I think it'll be interesting if if Labour wins the next election to see how comedy in Britain deals with it after such a long period and such a transformational period of Conservative government since 2010 with Brexit and almost the collapse of kind of existing political structures that have left us with this very strange... Volatile political landscape, so that'll be it'll be really interesting to see. I'm, you know, quite looking forward to that happening on on a a number of levels. But I think, you know, comedically, it will be a really interesting challenge, and it might take a while, as it probably did with Blair for comedians at the time, to adjust the way that they did political comedy. From just got to, you know, to see what a new government does for a while. Um, and it'll be very interesting. But yeah, anyway, that's got slightly off the um the original question. But yeah, I think. I'm always aware of the difference between those audiences and, and also say when I do live work, again, that's more, you know, the sort of yeah, you know, a bubble as you describe it, of you know, people who've actively chosen to come rather than people who say with a news quiz have just have the radio on or have been listening to that that slot for decades. And so I just have to do it slightly differently. And I try to keep creative, I try to make sure that I've I'm on top of the topics that we're doing. I try to keep things sort of unexpected comedically and yeah hopefully people uh, i think most people seem to have enjoyed it since i've taken over
0: now keen-eared listeners will have spotted that you've thrown in at least two sport references already not least total football <laughs> metaphor for aristophanes and sport is a massive part of your life it's also a massive part of your broadcasting life because you work alongside me and others in the test mat special commentary box now people who aren't particularly familiar with this will be thinking, this is a very strange thing. You don't get satirists on football commentary particularly. Maybe you should, but you don't. uh, In any sport whatsoever. But there's something unique about cricket commentary. And yet the role that you've got as statistician is perhaps the one that initially people would think is the least likely one for a satirist. Because you come in a very short line. Statisticians haven't been around on Test Match Special for an enormous amount of time. Uh, bill frindle would have been the first really major one i say not for that long about 45 50 years ago Um, (laughs) so it it has been quite a while but he had that role for a very long time and then malcolm ashton took it over and both of them were splendid statisticians but they basically told the commentators about some numbers some records something that was unusual an unusual pattern uh, that might be playing out in front of their eyes nowadays The role you have created for yourself there, of course, we had Andrew Sampson as well. But Andrew Sampson was still sort of more in the mold of the old statistician. But he was armed with these tools that the older statisticians didn't have. Now, you are armed with these databases now that go back and can crunch numbers and illuminate what we see in front of us. In this ensemble program in which you are on air, unlike the rest of us who get breaks every 20 (laughs) minutes, you are on air for seven hours with a break for lunch and tea. It seems like it's exhausting. It seems like it's not really something that a satirist. I mean, how do you satirise the number of dot balls that have been bowled? So for people who don't understand what that means, the number of times somebody hasn't scored a run in the last half an hour. How do you satirise that? And yet somehow you don't necessarily satirise it, but you find comedy in it. But also you are deeply and profoundly wed to the truth of it, is what I've noticed. Sitting next to you, you hate a false fact, mm. and and I wonder if part of that is actually what can link us to the satirist in you because you don't like people being wrong. Stop being wrong on the internet.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting way of putting it. And because there are certain similarities in what I do on on Test Match Special, and as you say, in the last sort of ten, fifteen, twenty years, probably with the internet, really since Stats Guru was launched on Crick Info, which is a publicly available stats database that anyone can play around with, it's made what you can do with cricket statistics and other you know other sports it's opened up way more avenues and many more different ways of looking at the sport. Now there's a, a danger in that in that you've got to try and find the ones that are relevant, that are interesting to the listeners and that help illustrate what's going on in a game. And I see that as you know the role that I have within Test Match Special as the statistician to find numbers that help tell the story that you the commentators and the and the expert pundits are telling to help illustrate when something, you know, what's happening, why it's happening, when something is unusual, you know, what things might happen if you look at sort of head to heads between different players or technical things uh, like that. So it's, it's part of telling the story of cricket. And that's why I think Test cricket in particular has sustained for almost 150 years because it is a fascinating form of narrative. And that's our job within commentary is to tell that story. Now, in terms of a parallel with what I do in comedy, uh, I guess what I'm looking for in cricket statistics and you know it's just been it's a lifelong obsession of mine from when I was 6 7 years old I used to read books add bill frindle scorecards in the back so it's you know the thing that I know most about in uh with my wasted brain which was just full of 1980s sports facts that I can't shift but it's trying to find interesting angles that illustrate what's happening now that's I guess what comedians do is you know to try to find things that you wouldn't have maybe thought of looking at, or the a way of looking at things that you wouldn't have thought of, so when it comes to news, trying to find those things that are worth satirizing or just a way of looking at it that is unexpected for the listener, so with statistics i 'm trying to find what illustrates what 's going on in a game, but also what what sort of unexpected ways of explaining that I might be able to find, so it's quite creative in that regard in the way that writing comedy is creative and trying to find interesting angles on things, interesting ways of presenting things, and there's a similarity between that and what I tried to do with the stats on TMS and before that when I was writing about them for crick Info.
0: Something that occurs to me and having spent a lot of time in your company and listened to your passion about test cricket. And people who don't perhaps understand cricket, there are different forms of cricket. Test cricket's the one you like the least if you don't like cricket. It's the one that goes on forever it can last for five days. At the end of it, it could be a draw. Apparently, that's funny to people. It isn't funny to Andy and me. (laughs) We think that that's fundamentally the point. But that's sort of what I want to drive at here, because satirists are often seen as iconoclasts. They're sort of seen as people who are shaking up the system, having a go at various shibboleths that may dominate. But you, and indeed I... passionate about maintaining this tradition of this crazy thing that's been going for 150 years and i wonder if there's a little bit of the classicist in you there as well (laughs) you know there's the person who says well just because it it's been going on for 150 years or 2500 years doesn't make it any less worthwhile not everything has to change constantly do you see what i'm driving at it's a slightly unusual place for a satirist to be yes but i guess with satire you
1: try to find what you think is the best solution to a problem the best way of doing things and if the you know prevailing way of doing things is not that then you try to highlight that through satirical comedy so you know whether I don't really come at cricket from a sort of satirical point of view and in terms of the sort of anti-establishment nature of it in a way the, the establishment of cricket now is veering towards short form cricket so the power in the game and generally, satire attacks power. The power in the game is the commercial drive towards short form cricket, which is having an extremely damaging effect on longer form cricket. So in terms of you know the satirical angle, you could say, well you know you're attacking where the power is, so it's not a question of attacking tradition for tradition's sake in satire it's attacking you know, if there's you know established power that's is being misused then That's what you would attack so in in cricket's had a very sort of transformational time and also and i think you know we talk about this quite a lot on test match battle as well we sort of love test cricket but there's a lot of things that could be done better about it and i think you know people who who love that form of the game or just love the sport in general want it to sustain because they think it's wonderful and they'd like more people to be able to enjoy it in future because yeah like i say it, it is an endlessly fascinating sport in a number of levels, but you need to be sort of inducted into it to a large degree. Now, for our generation, Dan, that was largely just sitting on the sofa at home, watching it on the telly or listening on the radio because there weren't many options. When you were in the summer holidays, there were three channels. And so that was well four channels from the early 80s. You almost osmosed that as a child. Now there's so many alternatives and life is more hectic. Yeah, there's a worry within cricket fans that how the future generations of cricket fans are going to be inducted into the wonders of test-match cricket because you know I think it is, you know, without wishing to bang on about it too much, I think you could almost scientifically prove why it's a great sport, a great form of dramatic entertainment. I know, that's a rather roundabout way of answering your question, but I guess you know, satire doesn't necessarily need to be in favour of the new it's largely like you say in favor of what the satirist believes is right and generally against or you know scrutinizing the powerful and how they use their power whether that's in organizing the international cricket calendar or working out how to catapult asylum seekers to rwanda
0: now you're not alone as a comedian with obsessive interest in sport Uh, We've mentioned Mark Steele already, who's obsessed by football and cricket and tennis. He went to the darts last year. You love your snooker. You love ice hockey. Yeah. That's an awful lot of time spent watching sport. You talked about osmosing it. I know exactly what you mean by that. Do you feel in any way that we've wasted our lives by spending so much of it watching sport, or has it enhanced us? Uh, those are not mutually exclusive, Dan. Yes,
1: uh, we've wasted our lives, and yes, it's also enhanced us. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is I mean, obviously fundamentally irrelevant, which is why it's such a joyous escape from reality. I find increasingly from a personal level, the sports that interest me most are the ones that have the more interesting narratives, and quite often the ones that have individual discrete play. So cricket, obviously, is each ball shifts the story of the game on whether it be dramatically with a wicket, quite dramatically with a boundary, or imperceptibly with a ball where, you know, it might be the bowler bowls it, the batsman leaves it, and it appears that nothing has happened. But at the same time, the bowler is one ball more tired or more in rhythm. The batter is one ball more attuned to the situation and and the conditions. The ball is one ball older and in limited overs. You've got, you know, one less ball left. So it might be that... And, and it's almost like a, a kind of pointillist painting of building up to show the story as it as it evolves so snooker is you know every shot shifts the what's happening in a frame and you know therefore what's happening in in the match i find american football really fascinating because each individual play moves the game on whereas football i found sort of decreasingly interesting because goals are so rare which is what makes them exciting at the same time each individual bit of play doesn't then affect what happens after if someone has a 25 yard shot that goes off the crossbar for a goal kick that doesn't really make an impact to the story of the game it's just an isolated incident that then doesn't really affect what's going on tennis again it's in each individual point is part of the broader narrative so those are the sports that i found particularly interesting but i mean fundamentally in terms of why i've been so interested through life i guess it was as a child i was just absolutely fascinated by sport and quite why that was and my dad was really into rugby but i don't remember sort of sitting and watching a lot of sport on tv with him i guess that there's so much about it if you get in where you know there's an element of puzzle solving within sport when you when you're playing it or, or even as you're watching it but it is i think fundamentally that watching people do things that are physically impressive but also that's the stories that go behind them. now those stories might be as in as in test cricket You've got, as well as the story within the game you've got, say, in when England play Australia, the story that goes back to eighteen seventy seven so there's all these sort kind of overlapping narratives, and go back to classics, the origins of Western literature with you know Homer, that was epic narrative. That's human fascination with evolving stories is you know one of our defining features. As a species, so, anyway uh, again i 've got slightly off the the original point, but fundamentally, I just loved it. it was an it, sport is you know it 's an escape, it exists in its own world, it has sort of parallels with reality, but fundamentally it 's just
0: better than the real world. What was the last novel you read?
1: The last novel I read um, I read um, Acts of the
0: Assassins by richard beard that's a brilliant book, isn't it?
1: Yeah, fascinating book that was a few months ago now
0: yeah let's not talk about that what was interesting was you haven't read novels really for quite a long time you spent too much time watching sport
1: yeah i'd spend a lot of time reading for my what i'm doing writing comedy i just spend all day reading news and generally my eyes are a bit tired and my head doesn't want to read anything else So, so i have got quite lazy with with reading that's one of my many regrets in life
0: right i'm going to finish off by putting you on the spot and presenting you with a dilemma because you are Passionate about the two main sources of of work for you, which are sport, cricket especially, although not just that, and your work as a satirist and host and podcaster. If it came down to it, let's say there's a, an Ashes series and it's let's face it, the last one was absolutely magnificent, and you have been told that you will never work for the News Quiz ever again. If you do do the ashes because it clashes let's just say it clashes and it comes down to it what do you choose on the assumption that you can watch every test match that england ever play for the rest of your natural life and be scorer
1: right there's a couple of things i need to ask about this one what are the chances of my radio for commissioners listening to this show before i answer that question <laughs> <laughs> i don't know um and, i mean am i still allowed to do other comedy do, do i have to give up comedy entirely
0: I think you've got to give up all comedy. Then you've got to give up all comedy right. or all sport. You've got to choose one or the other. Can I still watch sport recreationally? I, I suppose you can watch it recreationally, but you're not allowed to write about it or talk about it or podcast about it. Oh, this is really... like making me choose between my two children. Is that so difficult? I've always wondered about <laughs> this. I don't have children. And people yeah. keep saying that, but I'm, <laughs> you, know, you must prefer one to the other. That's a
1: really hard question. To, not the children, but the sport or comedy... Uh, I mean, I've been doing comedy longer than I've been working in sport, uh, working in cricket. I love doing comedy, but doing Test Match Special is the thing that I've enjoyed most in my career. It's a very hard. Very, it's very hard to answer. I mean, I think do you factor in the finances of it? Uh, because, uh, I think that you know, there's a, a more of a ceiling with with cricket stats, to be honest. Um, but, uh, so I don't know. I don't know, Dan. I, you know, if you ask me this tomorrow, I might have a different answer. Uh, And it slightly depends how soon the next cricket is. So, I don't know. Comedy is addictive, particularly live comedy, which I don't do so much now, but I've got some tour dates. Live comedy is deeply addictive. There is nothing quite like that. At the same time, getting to work on TMS during a test match is the uh, most enjoyable thing I've ever done, with all due respect to my wife and children. Uh, So,
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, so you go. Do you need a definitive answer, Dan? No, I don't need a definitive answer. In fact, in fact, that's kind of the point, isn't it? We, we just don't know. And why should you know?
1: Also, when you ask me that, I'm I'm constantly aware of how fortunate I am to do two things that I absolutely love for a, a living, which is, um, I guess, the dream in life.
0: Absolutely. And if I was going to deny you doing one thing in favour of the other, it would be a bit like abolishing test cricket in favour of T20, which is what we're both not going to force on the outside world. Addie's oldman, it's been an absolute delight listening to you i very much look forward to sharing commentary boxes with you well into the future unless your bosses don't let you <laughs> you've been listening to the latest episode of the Rathbones inspired minds podcast series with me daniel norcross and my fabulous guest andy zaltzman you can listen to previous episodes of the series on all major podcast platforms and if you enjoyed listening don't forget to like or subscribe to find out more about the series just go to rathbones.com the Rathbones Inspired Minds podcast series, now available on all podcast platforms and at rathbones.com.